Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 33 Voices. I'm delighted today to be joined by somebody who I've followed for a long time, so it's wonderful to have the opportunity to speak with him. Brilliant journalist, researcher, and wonderful storyteller whose three books have had a huge impact on me, but they've covered three hugely impactful topics, depression, addiction, and today, attention. His latest, I know, is on every social media executive's desk. It's called Stolen Focus, and he is Johan Hari. So, Johan, great to be with you. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you. Cheers. Cheers to you. I mean, first off, I want to acknowledge, as I shared to, with you off the record, your work is brilliant. Your entire body of work is brilliant. It's always thoughtful. It's always well-researched. And certainly for me, it's always been incredibly useful. But I also find it that it is deeply personal to you. So I'm very curious as to why do you do what you do? Because you take really difficult topics and you go deep, deep, deep into them. For me, thank you for what you said. For me, every book I write is an attempt to solve a mystery that I really want to get to the bottom of for myself. So my first book, Chasing the Scream, was about addiction. We, we had a lot of addiction in my family. Nothing seemed to be helping. Nothing seemed to be working. So I wanted to figure out, okay, well, what causes addiction, right? What Has anywhere found a solution to addiction? What's going on there? With with Lost Connections, my book about depression, I wanted to understand, you know, I was nearly 40 when I wrote that. And every year I'd been alive, depression and anxiety had gone up in the Western world. I had experienced a lot of depression. I wanted to understand well, what's going on, right? Why is it that more, more and more people are getting depressed? How do we solve it? And with my most recent book, Stolen Focus, I think that the mystery for me was, you know, I felt like with each year that passed, things that required deep focus, things that are very deep to my sense of self, like reading a book, having long involved conversations, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I noticed this happening to pretty much everyone around me, right? I was particularly worried about the young people in my life who I love, who often seemed to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat when nothing still or serious could touch them. And when I started to look, I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to start to look into this. Even very early on, I was struck by some of the evidence on this. For every one child who was identified with a serious attention problem when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. The typical American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. It's like, whoa, what, what's happening here, right? So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I went from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne to Montreal, not just cities that begin with the letter M. And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus, many different aspects of attention and focus. And what I learned is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of those factors that can make your attention worse have been exploding in recent years. That includes some aspects of our technology, but goes way beyond it. It goes from the food we eat to the air we breathe to the sleep we don't get. And the key thing I learned, I think, is that our attention didn't collapse. Our attention has been stolen from us by some big forces. And once you understand that, it opens up a very different set of solutions that we can pursue together to get our brains back. So we'll dive into some of these causes and certainly the, the ideas that you're, you're going to share with people. But so you do all of this research for all of your work and you do travel the world. And I was making fun of you saying you probably live in hotels more than you live at home. <laughs> but what happens when these topics are researched and when these books are published? Do you revisit them? What impact do they have on you that is lasting? Well, that's a really interesting question that to me, there's a, always, there's two things that happen that are very moving when a book comes out, one of my books comes out and it usually takes a few weeks or a few months for this to start happening. So one is obviously I'm a journalist, right? I'm not a scientist. So I go and interview scientists and people who are trying different approaches or in this case, attention problems. And what happened, and I write about these people and I get to know them incredibly well, a lot of them, the people I write about. And there's always a moment 
when the people I wrote about contact me and say, oh, people have started to reach out to me because they want to join my work. They want to they become part of this. And that's always to me profoundly moving. So for example, there's a woman I write about in Stolen Focus called Lenore Skenazi, who's discovered, I think, a key reason why our children can't pay attention. And even more importantly, she's discovered the solution to that problem and she's building that solution. She's a completely extraordinary person. And to me, the, the one of the greatest joys of writing a book is you get to feel like you are introducing people who've got a problem to people who've got the solution. And that to me is always the most joyful moment. The other joyful thing that happens is you often get, and usually this is a bit later than that, you start to get contacted by people who've read the book who you could not possibly have pictured when you were writing the book. So I'll give you a specific example. You know, when I wrote Chasing the Screen, my book about addiction, I went to a lot of places that had massively reduced their addiction crises by moving beyond the war on drugs <clears throat> and towards more compassionate approaches towards addiction. And I got contacted about a year and a half after that book came out. So I'm a gay, liberal atheist, and I got contacted by a woman called Christina Dent. Christina is an evangelical Christian in Mississippi, and, and Christina is passionately pro-life. And she believes that if you're pro-life and opposed to abortion, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. You've got to actually help the babies that are then born. So she fosters a lot of children in the Mississippi foster care system. And a lot of the kids in the foster care system in Mississippi are there because their mothers had addiction problems. So she gets to know a lot of these mothers. And because Christina is a very kind, decent person, she starts to ask herself, well, why did nobody help these women? So they didn't get ages ago before it got to the point where their children had to be taken away. And then she saw me on Fox News talking about my book and she read it and she reached out to me. And so I went to see her. We met up. She's an amazing person. And I said, you know, you, you are who we need in this fight, right? You're exactly the kind of person we need. And she has set up a group in Mississippi called End It For Good, who are fighting to end the drug war in Mississippi and particularly fighting to persuade evangelical Christians to become part of the fight to end this. We're actually now campaigning across the United States. They've had a big effect already in Mississippi towards getting more compassionate policies. Now, it's fair to say Christina is absolutely not the person I was picturing when I wrote Chasing the Scream, right? I did not picture an evangelical Christian in Mississippi resonating with this message, and, and it totally did. And, and, that, and that's very humbling because you, you, you begin to, you know, we're so shut down and polarized in this culture now, pretty much all over the world, partly because of the things that I write about in Style and Focus that perhaps we'll, we'll get to some of those, the, fast, the aspects of the way we're living that are damaging our attention and therefore damaging our ability to talk to each other in sane ways politically. Um, and we need so many more points of connection and so many more points of love. And yeah, so those are the, when the book comes out, those are to me, the two greatest moments. The people I've written about start to contact me to say people want to join the fight. And then people I just couldn't, well, I mean, Christina is just one of many examples. There's doctors in Kazakhstan who use my book Lost Connections to break the taboos about childhood trauma in Kazakhstan. I was not picturing anyone in Kazakhstan when I wrote that book, right? There's Norwegian drug policy reformers who picked up the book. There's people in Mexico who, lawyers in Mexico who use Chasing the Screen, the aspects about how the drug war banning drugs causes a huge amount of violence because it transfers the industry to armed criminal gangs. They use that to fight for legal reforms in Mexico. So yeah, it's an incredibly moving thing and and because that's when you get to feel like oh I, I did my job i found some people who are doing amazing things and i told the people who needed to know about those amazing things about those people that that to me is the best thing about being a so writer you really you open the you you open the dialogue you open the conversation you give us something to talk about and one of for me again i'm speaking for myself personally one of the central themes that i see that runs through a lot of your work is you're building bridges to human connection. And I see that human connection more specifically is that central theme in, in the work that you do. Is that by design or is that just serendipity that these three topics have human connection as the core focus of it? All your books have these little circles, right? And that's where <laughs> I see as the human connection. Is that just me overthinking it or is that by design? No, 
think you're right. I think it's always hard as a writer. Usually your themes emerge sort of subconsciously, but I think you're totally right. And in a way, I've come to think about connection in a sort of deeper sense, because often when we think about connection, either we, I mean, the most thing most people think of now when they hear that word is an internet connection, right? Mm -hmm. And I would argue, although there's huge value in the internet, of course, currently a lot of the ways we're interacting online are more like parodies of connection than connection. But also I, I think I've come to think of connection in a richer and deeper way than I did before I did the research for the books, because the way I think of connection now is everyone listening knows they have natural physical needs. Obviously you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be screwed. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And we've become disconnected in the culture we've created. Many great things about the culture in which we live. I'm glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. We've been cut off from many of the connections that we profoundly need. And that's producing all sorts of problems. It produces anxiety, it produces depression, produces addiction. And it also, I would argue, is, is, is part of what's going on with our attention problems. We've also, in fact, with our attention problems, some of it is actually we've even been cut off from our physical needs like sleep and nutrition, but also that we've been cut off from our psychological needs. So I think there's, yeah, I think once you start to see the world in that way, you begin to see that, of course, it doesn't explain everything, but many problems, once you, once you have that framework in your mind, and obviously, you know, the, the deep body of science that shows that it's true, you begin to see many of the problems in the world as having a component linked to unmet psychological needs. We'll talk about the specifics in a minute, but one of the great privileges for me is I've kind of designed my life where I get to talk to brilliant people like you all the time. And I get the opportunity to work with very talented people. The majority of them happen to be kind of in the world that you are, uh, you're talking about. And one of the things that I have learned personally, whether it's, you know, building my own organization or in having the opportunity to be an observer or an advisor to others, specifically in leaders is Certainly, there's a lot of company building things that we got to do, and there's a lot of things that we've got to do strategically. But I've always felt, Johan, that if I can help somebody get their head right, everything else seems to work. And it seems like the whole components of these 12 causes that you identify, and when we get to the end, it really starts to, 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 to help me crystallize the fact as human beings, we have choices to make and we can choose to recognize these causes that we're going to talk about and that you put forth. But at the end of the day, it's one thing to read a book and say, this was wonderful. It's a whole different game to implement it and to live that way. So mm -hmm. does that resonate with you? Do you see that each of us has a responsibility to figure out how we get our own head right in order to be able to embrace what you're telling me so I can get better at it? Yeah. And I think in a way, you know, it's very important to me. There's so many nonfiction books that are elaborate descriptions of problems, uh, which is valuable and worth doing. But for me, all of my books are about solutions, right? I'm only interested in the problem if we can get to a solution. I don't want to just leave people thinking, oh, we're screwed then, right? And I think one of the things that's very encouraging to me is there actually are solutions, right? That, that, so I argue I think the evidence is pretty clear that we're in a serious attention crisis for us and for our children. And that is causing all sorts of problems. And I, I think what you're saying is really important because I would just say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's running a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, your ability to achieve anything breaks down. Your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. Your ability to solve your problems breaks down. We become profoundly diminished. And I think when it becomes severe, when attention problems become severe, and it, you know, it's staggering, the average Fortune 500 CEO now only gets 26 minutes a day to himself without being interrupted, right? Mm -hmm. 
But that is a severe level of impairment when it comes to the ability to think deeply, anticipate the future, process the past, formulate your goals, make sure you're achieving your goals. Um, When that happens, if that becomes chronic, if you become chronically unable to pay attention, I think what happens is you become a kind of stump of yourself, right? You can sense what you might have been, but you don't feel you're able to get there. And it's interesting, there's a there's a, a way of thinking about attention that really helped me. By, it comes from a, an incredible man named Dr. James Williams, who used to be a senior strategist at Google, left and has become, I would argue, the most important philosopher of attention in the world. And Dr. Williams came up with this way of thinking about it, because generally when we think about attention, I think this goes to the heart of your question. Generally, when we think about attention, we think about one particular layer, which is the most obvious layer, which is what he calls your spotlight. So your spotlight is your ability to filter out. So think about the fact I'm in a hotel room in Vegas right now. If I turn my head, I can see the strip. I can hear the aircon in the room over there. Although I've deliberately put it out of view is my phone. Maybe it's glowing. Maybe I'm getting text messages. I'm filtering all of that out. I'm narrowing my spotlight down to you. I'm saying, what did Mo just ask me? Okay. Talking to him. Right. So that's the kind of form of attention we think at most is spotlight attention. So your spotlight is your ability to do short-term acts. You know, I want to read this chapter. I want to, you know, email the following five people. I want to go to the fridge and get a Diet Coke, whatever it might be. So when your spotlight is disrupted, your ability to do things in the short term is disrupted. And that's the dominant form of attention problems that we think about. But actually that's only one of what I would, what Dr. Williams argues is three layers. I would actually argue there's a fourth layer. The second layer is what he calls your starlight. And your starlight isn't your ability to achieve short-term goals. It's your ability to achieve medium or longer-term goals. So it's not, I want to read a chapter of this book, but say, I want to write a book, or I want to set up a business, or uh, I want to be a good parent, whatever it might be. He calls it your starlight because when you're lost in the desert and you don't know where you're, you forget where you're going, you look to the stars and you remember what direction you're traveling in. Now, I would argue we're losing a lot of our starlight as well. The third layer is what he calls your daylight, which is your daylight is how you even know what your long-term goals are in the first place. How do you know you want to set up a business? How do you know what business you want to set up? How do you know what it means to be a good parent? How do I know what subject I want to choose for my next book, right? He calls it daylight because you can see a room most clearly when it's flooded with daylight. I would argue we're losing all three of those layers of attention. And I would also add a fourth one. I know Dr. Williams agrees with this, and I would call it your, our stadium lights. It's our ability to see each other, right? And look at each other and have sane conversations with each other. And it's, we're not just losing individual attention, which is disastrous enough. As a society, we're losing our collective attention. Something has gone disastrously wrong with our collective attention. We can't talk to each other. We scream at each other all the time. We can't deal together with even very basic problems. People don't need me to tell them about things that have happened in the news over the last five years. So I would argue all of these forms of, and I really like this way of thinking about attention as a form of light, because when you get your attention back, it is like you've got your light back, like you can see clearly again. Does that ring true to you? 100%. So it kind of leads me to want to know what is, I know what it is for me, what is the underlining cause of our addiction to technology? Put aside all of the, the the strategic things that technology companies do to grab our attention. However, it seems like we as human beings have found something with our phones, with our social media and so forth that keeps us connected. What is the underlining issue here? So I think there's lots of things going on and we don't want to be simplistic about it. I would argue there's sort of three levels to this. If we think of the technology itself, much of the technology we currently use is designed to maximally invade our attention because of the specific business model that drives it. This isn't my view. This is the view of people at the very heart of this machinery. Sean Parker, for example, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, said publicly, we designed Facebook to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. That's what they say. So you think about, if you think about this technology as, this is perhaps too pejorative because there are many good aspects of it as well. But if you think about this technology as a virus, right? 
That virus would have been powerful at any point in human history when it arrived. But that virus arrived at a moment when our collective immune system, our ability to resist invasion of our attention, was already down for a whole range of reasons. So I'll give you one very obvious example. We sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. And the evidence is overwhelming. It's a bit of a no-shit Sherlock scientific discovery. I don't think we needed much science to tell us this, but the science is overwhelming that in order to be able to pay attention properly, you need to sleep eight hours a night. You need a good night's sleep. And this is because, as Professor Roxanne Prashad, one of the leading sleep experts in the world at the University of Minneapolis, explained to me, we think of sleep as a passive process, that nothing's happening. In fact, sleep is an incredibly active process. All throughout the day when you're awake, metabolic waste is building up in your brain, what Professor Prashad calls brain cell poop. And when you go to sleep, your brain cleans itself. A watery fluid rinses through your brain, your cerebral spinal fluid channels open up, and that brain cell poop is carried out of your brain, down into your liver and out of your body. If you don't get eight hours sleep a night, that doesn't happen. Your brain remains clogged up. You know that feeling when you're tired and you feel almost hungover and clogged up? That's not a metaphor. Your brain is literally clogged up with metabolic waste. This is why, by the way, people who sleep less are significantly more likely to get dementia later in their lives. But this has a because your brain is literally developing plaques and tangles. But this has a catastrophic effect on attention. If you stay awake for just 19 hours, your attention suffers as much as if you had got legally drunk. And 19 hours doesn't sound like much to me, right? This is why Dr. Charles Seisler, one of the leading experts at Harvard Medical School, arguably the leading sleep expert in the world, said to me, even if nothing else had changed in the last you know, 100 years, except that we sleep so much less, that alone would be causing a very serious attention crisis. And of course, we know that's not the only change. But you can see how, once you understand that and the other, you know, obviously I write about 12 factors in the book, you can see how those interact. Think about if you've had a night where you didn't sleep properly, how much easier it is to spend that day mindlessly scrolling through TikTok than if you had a good night's sleep, right? Or the way we eat is profoundly damaging our attention. We can talk more about that. When we're chronically stressed, it profoundly damages our attention. When we're interrupted all the time, as our technology is currently designed to do, it profoundly damages our attention. There's all sorts of these factors. But what's happening is they're coming together in what Professor Earl Miller at MIT, one of the world's leading neuroscientists, calls a perfect storm of cognitive degradation. So to me, if you think of those as two layers, you've got the technology as a virus, You've got the depleted immune system as that makes us more vulnerable to the virus. And then I would say the third level is all humans are always going to have some struggle between distraction and attention. And that's healthy, right? That's one of the reasons why we're a successful species. Sometimes we can be very speedy, constantly following lots of things. And other times we can be deeply focused, right? And that's just a perennial human struggle. Every human that's ever been has struggled with that to some degree, right? That's never going to go away, nor should it. But at the moment, we're living in an environment that loads us way too far towards the speedy, distracted, rapid, and makes deep focus very, very difficult. And an environment where people's needs are not met, where people's psychological needs are not met, will make them want to be more distracted. Just think about the evidence about loneliness. Even before COVID, 41% of Americans agreed with the statement, nobody knows me well. Now, in a really lonely society where you don't feel seen by people, where you don't get that face-to-face -face contact, and obviously the pandemic hugely accelerated this, yeah, you're going to want to be scrolling all the time. Better a Facebook friend than no friends, right? But we can all see that's not, that's not, I mean, Mark Maron, the comedian once said, every Facebook status update could be boiled down to the underlying statement, will somebody somewhere please acknowledge I exist, which is you know, perhaps going a little bit too far, but but we can see how that works. I think we've got all these layers at work, which can sound daunting, but once you understand the problem, then we can begin to build the meaningful solutions. Well, I knew this conversation was going to take me many, many places. And yeah, I'm fascinated by the depth of your research. I want to just kind of pick a few things here that I think are really sure. critical, that I am absolutely fascinated with the pursuit of excellence or the pursuit of greatness, whether it's in athletics or company building or life. Mm -hmm. 
And that obviously takes me to the whole notion of flow states, which is one of the causes mm-hmm. that we're, when we are distracted, we are instantly taken away from the flow states. And you've had an intimate connection with the godfather of flow states. Tell me how, one, what happens when the distraction takes us away from these flow states? What can we do about it? Because I know you're personally working towards that yourself. Yeah, so for people who don't know about this, everyone listening will have experienced a flow state. A flow state is when you're doing something that's meaningful to you and you just totally get into it and your sense of time falls away, your sense of ego falls away. And the way one rock climber put it is you, it feels like you are the rock you're climbing when you're in flow. And different people get into flow doing different things. For you, it might be making bagels. It might be doing brain surgery. For me, it would be writing. Yeah, different people, it's different things. But flow is really important for the debate about attention because flow is simultaneously the deepest form of attention that humans can provide. And once you get into it, the easiest form of attention you can provide. So once you're in flow, it's not like memorizing facts for an exam. You're not like, oh God, what year did Henry VIII die? It just flows very naturally. So if we think about flow as a gusher of attention that exists inside every human being, Obviously, what I wanted to figure out is, okay, where do we drill to hit that gusher? How do we do it, right? So I went to interview Professor Mahali Cheek sent me hi. You have no idea how long it took me to learn how to say that. Who yeah, me the, too. That's <laughs> torture. So it's the, because anyone who hasn't seen it written down, it looks nothing like yeah, that. It turns out Hungarian exactly. is a language that seems insanely irrational to an English speaker. But uh, so he, he's, the, he's the psychologist who first identified flow states in the 1960s, one of the most influential psychologists of the last century, totally incredible man. And I, I think I did the last interview he ever did because sadly he died shortly afterwards. And Professor Csikszentmihalyi discovered an enormous amount about flow states in his 50 years of researching it. But if I was going to just distill it down briefly for anyone listening, um, I took away three key lessons that if you want to maximize your chances of getting into flow, what you can do. Now, there's no guarantee on this, but this maximizes your chances. The first thing is you've got to choose one goal and set aside all your other goals for a while. You've got to do one thing. If you're trying to do more than one thing at a time, you will never get into flow. Secondly, you've got to choose a goal that's meaningful to you. And this is really interesting. Attention evolved to attach to meaning. A frog will stare longer at a fly than at a stone because a fly is meaningful to the frog and the stone is not, right? If you're trying to pay attention to something that isn't meaningful to you, your attention will slip and slide off it. In fact, if you're struggling to pay attention to something, sometimes that can be a sign that you're trying to focus on the wrong thing. It's not actually something meaningful to you. The third thing is it really helps if you choose something at the edge of your comfort zone, but not beyond it. So say you're a medium talent rock climber. You don't want to just try to climb over your garden wall. That's going to be too easy. You won't get into flow. Equally, you don't want to suddenly try and climb Mount Kilimanjaro. That's going to be completely overwhelming. You'll just get daunted. You want to climb a slightly higher and harder rock face than the one you chose before. As someone said, life begins at the edge of your comfort zone and flow begins at the edge of your comfort zone, right? So if you do these three things, you narrow yourself down to one goal, you make sure it's a meaningful goal, and you push yourself to the edge of your comfort zone, you maximize your chances of getting into flow. That isn't a guarantee, but you hugely increase your chances. And even as I say that, I think a lot of people listening will realize one of the reasons why we're living in an environment that militates against that. Go back to step one. You've got to do one thing at a time, right? We're living in an environment that makes that extremely difficult. And this interacts with one of the other causes that I write about in Stolen Focus, which I learned about from a person I mentioned before, but Professor Earl Miller at MIT. So Professor Miller, when I went to interview him, so he's won some of those prestigious awards in neuroscience. He knows as much about the human brain as any living person. And he said to me, look, you've got to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it, right? This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time frame any of us are going to see. 
you can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is Professor Miller's colleagues and scientists across the world get people into labs and they get them to think they're doing lots of things at the same time. And they always discover the same thing. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between the tasks. Your consciousness kind of papers over it. It creates the illusion that you're doing lots of things at the same time, but you're not. And it turns out when you try and do more than one thing at a time, it always comes with a cost, a very big cost. The technical term for this is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll be less creative. You'll remember much less of what you do. And when you hear that, I think a lot of people listening will think, yeah, I get that. Okay. Like I did when I first said, okay, I get it. But that's a small thing, right? It's a small effect. When you look at the research, the, the evidence on this is shocking. Mm-hmm. So one yeah. study found that just receiving eight text messages an hour, which doesn't sound like very much, reduces your brain power for the main thing you're trying to focus on by 30%. Now, I would argue most of us are losing something like that most of the time. Or think about another study. This is a very small study, but it's backed by a wider body of evidence. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, they got a scientist in to study their workers. And he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just do your work, whatever it is, and you won't be interrupted. And the second group was told, do whatever your task is, but you're going to have to also answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live, right? And at the end of this experiment, they tested the IQ of of both of them, both groups. And the group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big an effect that is, Mo, if you and me sat together now and smoked cannabis, we got stoned, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points, right? There's a bigger debate about the long-term effect of cannabis on IQ, but in the short term, it's five points. So being chronically distracted is twice as bad for your IQ as getting stoned. You'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and doing lots of things at a time. Now, to be clear, you'd be better off neither getting stoned nor being distracted, obviously. But so you can see how, as I mentioned before, we're living in this storm that is undermining the deeper forms of our focus, which is why we need to focus, we need to focus, to use an ironic <laughs> locution, on how we get our focus back. So you have people who are listening and who certainly are part of your network and my network who are trying to solve really, really difficult problems in the world. Certainly that might qualify for that first trigger that you need to to have a singular goal and it needs to be slightly out of reach. Mm. It's one thing to get to the, to the first stage of flow. And this is certainly we need multiple discussions on this, but what have you learned just in your own experience, even for a week or a month, what do you do to stay there a little more consistently maybe than you've done in the past? So for all of the 12 causes that I write about in Stolen Focus, there are two levels at which we need to tackle them. I think of them as defense and offense. We've got to defend ourselves and our kids as much as possible from the forces that are pouring acid on our attention. And then we've got to go on the offense. We've got to take on the forces that are doing this to us. Think about something as simple as air pollution. So Professor Barbara Marr at the University of Lancaster has done incredible research on this. and Many other scientists have as well, showing that anyone who lives in a city at the moment, you're in LA, I'm in Vegas, we're definitely in this category, are breathing in air pollution that contains iron. And when you breathe it in through your nose, it goes straight to your brain. There is nothing in human evolution that prepared us for brain iron hitting our brains, right? It causes brain inflammation, which causes attention problems, right? And now we're all living with that. Now you can see with that, there's not much I can do to give you personal advice on that. I mean, you can wear a gas mask if you want, it can help a bit. We've got to actually take on the causes of the air pollution. It's one of the reasons we've got to hugely accelerate the transition to electric cars that will deal with that problem, right? But that's not something you and I can do as individuals. I mean, we can both individually get electric cars, but that's a societal change. So for everything we do, there's both an individual level, which I'm passionately in favor of, and a collective level. And I just want to be candid with people about that because I think a lot of 
people who write about attention focus solely on the individual level. And I just think it's, while I'm passionately in favor of those individual acts, I do them myself. They really help. I think it is dishonest and dangerous to leave out that second and crucial level. But in terms of what I do personally, which is what you're asking me about now and is really important to me. So I've made a whole series of changes in my life based on what I learned from these scientists. One is I, I prioritize sleep much more than I used to. I, 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 I used to think of sleep as wasted time. I now see if there was a drug we could take that would give us the benefits sleep gives us, we would all be all over that drug, right? If you sleep better, you'll be more creative, you'll be more intelligent, and your attention and focus will be dramatically better. And one of the best things you can do to improve your sleep, Dr. Seisler, who I mentioned at Harvard Medical School, taught me a lot about this. There's something he taught me that really helped me to understand it. So human, it helped me to understand what I was doing wrong before. So human beings evolved so that when it gets dark, our bodies produce an extra surge of energy. And if you think about the way we evolved, that makes perfect sense. You're, you know, we're living as hunter-gatherers. You might be away from the tribe or away from your cave or away from where you live. It starts to get dark. So your body gives you a sudden surge of energy. So you get back to the tribe. So you get back to the cave. So you don't get stuck in the dark on your own where you'll be in danger, right? very solid. Think about if you go camping, right? And you haven't set up your tent yet. If it gets dark, it's really helpful that you get a surge of energy because then you can put up your tent and you're not going to be sleeping out in the dark, right? So this evolved for a very good reason. But the problem is now we control the light. So you're lying in your bed. 90% of Americans look at a glowing screen within an hour of going to bed. Often, most of us actually, in fact, look at them in our beds. So you're in bed, you're looking at this glowing screen, and you turn it off and go to shut your eyes. But what's happened is your body's, the, the signal your body has received is, oh, it just got dark. I need to give Mo a surge of energy to wake him up, to get him back to the tribe, to get him back to the cave. But you're already in your cave. You're in bed, mm. right? So you can see how the, the evidence is very clear. Expo- and um, Dr. Sandra Cooge in The Hague, who's the leading expert on sort of adult ADHD, in, I interviewed her in the Netherlands, in The Hague, has done very interesting work on light exposure. Or Dr. Seisler said, you know, humans are as sensitive to light as algae. So uh, what I do now, and it, it links to a second form of the changes I've made, is um, I lock away my phone two hours before I go to sleep. So that even if two hours before, you know, five minutes before I want to go to bed, I suddenly go, oh shit, I should have answered that email. I can't do it because the phone is locked away, right? And this links to a second thing, which is I, I own a device called a K-Safe. I, I promise these people are not paying me commission. I keep plugging them at every interview, uh, but I have no commercial relationship with these people. Um, so a K-Safe is a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial at the top, and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I also have on my laptop, an app called Freedom, which will cut you off from specific websites, say you were addicted to Twitter or the entire internet for as long as you wanted to. I permanently have Twitter blocked on my laptop, right? I can never look it on my laptop. And, and I won't sit down to have watch a film with my partner or have my friends around for dinner unless we all agree to imprison our phones in this little phone prison, right? And, and this, is, this is a technique called pre-commitment. Pre-commitment is when you want to bind yourself. You want to be a better person in the future, but you know you'll crack. For me, it would be Pringles, right? If I buy Pringles and put them in my cupboard and I wake up at 2 a.m., I'm going to eat all those Pringles, right? Uh, So my form of pre-commitment is when I'm in the supermarket, I don't buy the Pringles because I know I'm not going to be able to discipline myself at 2 a.m. So my form of pre-commitment is just don't let them in the house, right? Treat them like they're radioactive. So a K-safe is a for and freedom are both forms of pre-commitment. So that's two examples. I mean, I go through dozens in the book, but those are two examples of changes I've made that have significantly boost my own attention and focus. I don't think I could have written my book without freedom in the K-safe. It, yeah, certainly the book would be much less uh, coherent than it is. Mm-hmm. How about nutrition? You were raised to spend 
time with your grandparents who lived a completely different life than your mom. And your summers were focused on going in the back and getting the vegetables and getting whatever it is that they had <laughs> in the back to eat. And when you're at home, it's the fast paced lifestyle of London, New York, LA. And you discover here that that actually is a major cause to, to this attention problem. This is really interesting because of, of all the 12 causes that I write about in style of focus or attention crisis, this is one of the ones that most surprised me and that I just, I just never thought about it. So like you mentioned, so I grew up in Edgware, in a, a, which is a suburb of London. And I was raised by my Scottish grandmother, who is a working class Scottish woman who, you know, working class Scottish people have basically the worst diet in the world. So we basically were right. I was, you know, we, I grew up, you know, eating microwave food, basically. The, invention of the microwave. Yeah, exactly. The invention of the microwave was the happiest day of my mother's life. Joan Rivers once joked that Elizabeth Taylor was the only person to ever stand in front of a microwave and scream faster, faster. But my, my grandmother was a bit like that. We loved uh, our junk food. But my dad was from, my dad had grown up on a mountain in Switzerland. And when I was nine, he suddenly announced, you will go to the farm for the summer. It will turn you into a man. I don't think it succeeded on that front, but I got banished there every summer from when I was nine to when I was um, 15. And when I arrived, so my Swiss grandparents, who I loved, they, um, they ate how pretty much all humans had eaten with a handful of exceptions for most of human history in that they grew their own food, they prepared it themselves, you know, they raised animals, they ate themselves. And I remember, I remember very clearly when I first went there when I was nine, my grandmother giving me this food like salad and stuff like that, and me literally saying to her, um, ce n'est pas nourriture, right? This, this isn't food, right? I, was, I wasn't joking. I literally didn't recognize it as food. I was like, I want food because this bore no resemblance to what I had eaten at home. And um, I sort of <laughs> ate as little of what she gave me as I could for a few weeks. And in the end, she cracked and agreed to take me to the McDonald's in Zurich. And when we went to McDonald's, she said to me when she saw it, exactly what I had said to her, she said, this isn't food. She wouldn't even try it. She was horrified by the sight of it. It didn't look like food to her. And you see how that's an extreme example, but in, essentially in three generations between my grandmother and me, the way we eat has completely changed. A majority of America, a majority of what Americans now eat, as Michael Pollan, the brilliant food writer, has, has discussed in detail, is now processed or ultra processed food. And he defines that as processed food is you can't figure out what the ingredients were in nature just by reading the back of the packet is a good kind of rough definition of it, right? So think about a Twinkie. You look at Twinkie, you're like, what was a Twinkie before it was a Twinkie? It's very hard to figure it out, right? You'd have to Google and read about it. And it turns out, so there's this really interesting movement called nutritional psychiatry, which looks at the ways in which what we eat affects the functioning of our brains. So I interviewed loads of these nutritional psychiatrists and other people who've researched this. And it turns out there are three really significant ways in which what we eat damages our ability to focus and pay attention. The first is, so imagine you have the standard American or British breakfast, what I grew up having, you have sugary cereal or you have white bread, toast and butter, right? What that does is that releases a huge amount of energy really quickly into your brain. It releases a lot of glucose in your brain and it feels great. You're like, I'm awake. The day has begun. But because it's released so much energy so fast, what will happen is you'll get to your desk and an hour or two later, or your kid will get to their school desk an hour or two later, and you'll have a huge energy slump and you'll get what's called brain fog. Brain fog is when you really struggle to focus until you have another sugary carby treat. The way we eat, because it produces such energy spikes and energy crashes, gives us long patches of brain fog throughout the day. The way Dale Pinnock, one of the leading nutritionists in Britain, put it to me, is it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini, right? It'll go really fast for a bit, and then it'll just stop. This is why if you eat food that releases energy more steadily, like say you had oatmeal for breakfast, you would have far fewer patches of, of brain fog. The second way is that for your brain to function optimally, you need to have all sorts of nutrients in your diet. 
And our diets are lacking a lot of those nutrients, most famously omega-3s, which are found in fresh fish and sardines. And unfortunately, supplements just don't cut it. The evidence on this is really clear. Your body just doesn't absorb nutrients from supplements the way it absorbs nutrients from food. So you've got to actually get it in food. Thirdly, and this is to me the most disconcerting, it's not just that our diets lack the things we need for our brains to function. Our current diets also contain chemicals that act on our bodies and our minds like drugs. So to give you an example, there was a study in the British city of Southampton in 2007, where they got 297 kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water to drink. And the second group was given water laced with a lot of the synthetic dyes that occur in loads of the candies we eat, the food we get in the supermarket, very common synthetic dyes. And then the kids were monitored. And the kids who drank the synthetic dyes were significantly more likely to become manic, to become hyperactive, to struggle to focus. And as a result of that, the European Union, which Britain was still part of back then, happy days, uh, the European Union banned all of those dyes, most of them. The United States has not. I'm sure that's one of the explains part of the reason, not all of it, but some of the reasons why American children have so much higher levels of ADHD than British children and European children, other European children. So you can see how this thing that I didn't even think of is about our attention, right? The fuel we give our bodies is profoundly and intimately connected to our ability to focus. And that's, that's one of those things too. I mean, you put yourself in, in kind of a leadership position as a leader. Those are some of the things that in the past used to be taboo to talk about. You know, you want excellence in performance at all levels of your business. So these are some issues that are catalysts to that. I know I got to let you go, but I want to touch on just a couple of really quick things. Um, speaking of ADHD, we can certainly get into that topic. That too has its own issue. However, one of the areas that you discovered and, and a myth that you dismissed is this whole notion of mind wandering, that there's actually good to mind wandering and that you're not flawed when you find yourself doing that. Tell me a little bit about your experience with that. Yeah, that was so interesting. So I, as you know, for research for the book, I took three months completely off the internet. I had no smartphone and I had no laptop that could get online. And I went to this place called Provincetown just to to sort of read and think deeply again. And it's really interesting because when I went there, it comes right back to where we were at the start. I thought I've come here to harness my spotlight, to like focus deeply, right? To read books. And, and that, that form of focus came back to a degree that stunned me. I thought, you know, I was nearly 40. I thought maybe my, I just got older. My attention was as good as it had been when I was 17. But about a month into being there, so I hadn't, obviously didn't have a smartphone, but I took with me an iPod that I had loads of audiobooks on. Uh, and it's funny, iPods seemed like such a futuristic invention before. And by the time I took them to Provincetown, they looked like a thing from the ark. And it's funny, every time I turned on my headphones, um, the, the noise cancelling headphones, it would say, searching for Johan's iPhone, searching for Johan's iPhone. And then it would just go, iPhone cannot be found. It was about very sinister for the first few weeks. But I remember about a month in, I thought, you know, I'm not going to take an audiobook with me. I'm just going to go for a walk. And I was just, and I, and it started every day just going for long, long walks without anything at all, you know, with no iPhone, nothing to distract me. Obviously I had no phone, no iPod. And what was weird is I discovered that actually I found that this was when I was most productive. I was coming up with the most ideas uh, and my mind was most fertile. And at first I thought, well, this doesn't really fit with what I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out about focus. But after I left Provincetown, I interviewed many of the leading experts on mind wandering in the world. And, and there's been a huge breakthrough in science on this, partly because of an incredible man I interviewed called Professor Marcus Reichel, who's at the University of Washington in St. Louis, Missouri. And, um, and what I learned is, in fact, mind wandering is a really important form of thinking. When you just let your mind wander without any stimuli, your mind processes what's happened in the past, anticipates and prepares you for the future. 
It makes connections between key things. If you look at the history of scientific and artistic discovery, often the biggest breakthroughs are made during moments of mind wandering. This famous example, I mean, there's so many examples, but think about Henri Poincaré, who one of the most important people in the history of math, who'd spent like a year trying to figure out the what's called the Poincaré conjecture, couldn't do it, decided to take a break for a few days. And just when he took a break, suddenly the answer came to him and he let his mind wander. But what we've got at the moment in the environment we've created is, I would argue, the worst of both worlds. We're neither spotlight focusing, nor are we mind wandering. We're just jammed up with switching all the time. What was that? What did that person just say on Facebook? What what, what did I just see on the TV? What's the, what, what's this message on WhatsApp? Wait, what did Mo just ask me? Wait, oh no, there's another message on Facebook. What's that? We're just jammed up. You think about the space for mind wandering. Just anyone listening, you know, I'm sure lots of people are listening while they're going about their day. Wait until you're next in a line in a store. You won't see anyone standing there just mind wandering. Everyone will be staring at their phones, right? We've squeezed out every possible space for mind wandering. It's like we see ourselves as like foie gras geese that have to be fattened every moment with information. That is not that is not a very productive way of, of thinking and being the best that you can be. And you mentioned before, Mo, I think this is really interesting about, because like you, I passionately believe in innovation. And if you care about innovation, I think attention should be the top of the list of things you're worried about. Because a population that cannot pay attention is a population that cannot be innovative. A population whose attention has gone to shit, who can't think deeply, is not going to be able to be deeply innovative. All innovation comes from deep thought, the ability to think and engage deeply. Of course, you also need speed, you need engagement, but you need to have periods of deep thought. And what we've lost is deep thought. And there's a metaphor that Dr. Williams, who I mentioned before, gave that I think is really helpful for this. He said, imagine you're driving somewhere and someone suddenly threw a huge bucket of mud over your windshield. It doesn't matter what you've got to do when you get to your destination. The first thing you have to do is get that mud off your windshield. If you don't get the mud off your windshield, you're not going anywhere. And I think this attention crisis is like the mud on the windshield, right? If we don't sort this out, doesn't matter what you want to innovate. Doesn't matter what you want to do. If we have a population who can't think clearly, think about the evidence about our children's attention problems, which I obviously a quarter of the book is about why our kids can't focus. And I think the solutions there are really clear and really exciting. Um, if we're raising kids who can't pay attention, we're not going to have the next wave of innovators, or they're going to be less innovative than they otherwise would have been. So I really think this is a a crisis we we can solve and have to solve. And, and I've seen solutions all over the world from France to New Zealand. I went to places, workplaces and others that have found solutions to a lot of these problems. I absolutely believe we can do this. A lot of these factors that are harming our attention and focus are relatively recent. They are human inventions. We can change those inventions if we want to. Think about something like just... The, some components of our tech are currently designed to destroy our attention or rather invade our attention to sell it to advertisers. It's not all of our tech. You know, James Williams said to me, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. It's true. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can tweak it if we want to. We can tweak it so we have an internet that is designed to heal our attention, not hack our attention. I spoke to people who talked all about how we can do that. There are lots of precedents for how we can deal with things like this. Humans have dealt with them before. We can deal with them now. I'm, I'm optimistic, but it, but it requires us to understand what's actually happening to us deeply, properly, to understand the nuanced 12 causes that are doing this, and then to look into, as I did, the solutions all over the world that we can build together. So lastly, obviously, there's a side to this that we haven't, haven't even touched on and, and, and hopefully at some other point we can touch on what is Wall Street and the Wall Street expectations and the business models that is putting pressure on these companies. But putting that aside, if you were on the board of Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok, what are you telling them? I would say, listen to your own data scientists. So in the wake of the victories of Brexit and President Trump, Facebook commissioned a group of its own brilliant data scientists to figure out, have we played a role in this? Have we played a role in the polarization that produced these outcomes? And the scientists went away, they came back. We now have had their report leaked. 
thanks to the brave work of Francis Haugen. And we know what those data scientists found. They said that Facebook's current business model inherently polarizes people and causes anger. The way the reason is at the moment, anyone who opens Facebook now, every minute you open it and every minute more that you scroll, Facebook makes more money. And of course, when you put it down, Facebook's that revenue stream disappears. So all of the algorithms, all of the engineering power, all of the Silicon Valley genius that they deploy is geared towards one goal. How do we get you to pick up your phone as often, often as possible and scroll as long as possible? Just like the head of KFC only cares about one thing in his professional capacity. Did you eat at KFC today? All of their financial incentives are to get you to scroll as much as possible. Now, it's important to stress this next thing was not designed by anyone at Facebook and it was not the intention of anyone at Facebook. But when you have a machinery that is designed to figure out and is incredibly sophisticated at figuring out what keeps people scrolling, that bumped into an underlying truth about human psychology that's actually been known about psychologists for more than 100 years now, which is called negativity bias. Negativity bias is really simple. Human beings will stare longer at things that anger and shock them than they will at things that make them feel good. If you've ever seen a car crash on the highway, you know how that works. You stared longer at the car crash than you did at the at the uh, pretty flowers on the other side of the street. Now, what the algorithms discovered, therefore, is the kind of posts that keep people scrolling are posts that anger and upset them. Now, picture two teenage girls who go to the same party and leave and go home on the same bus. One of them does an update where they say, I had a great time at that party. Everyone looked good. It was such fun. One of the other teenage girls goes, Karen was the fucking skank at that party and her boyfriend's a prick and everyone stank and just as a list of the algorithms scanning the kind of words that people use. It'll put the first one, the first update into a few people's feeds. It'll put the second update into way more people's feeds because it knows angry, hostile, outraging words make people scroll more. In fact, what are the words the YouTube algorithm picked up that most are most promoted? Hates, destroys, and obliterates. So the three words you can put into a YouTube video that will most get them get it picked up by the algorithm, right? There's good research on this. Now that is bad enough at the level of two teenage girls on a bus, right? It's one of the reasons why teenage girls are experiencing so much more anxiety. Now picture that at the level of a whole society, right? Where everyone's plugged into this angering, enraging machine for hours a day. We don't have to picture it. When Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right leader in Brazil, was elected, having previously been a marginal figure until the YouTube and Facebook algorithms picked up and promoted his content, what did his supporters chant that night at the election rally? They chanted Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. And Facebook's own data scientists found that a third of all the people who joined neo-Nazi groups in Germany joined because Facebook's algorithms specifically recommended they join. You might want to join, it said, followed by a neo-Nazi group. So what what the data scientists did, having gathered all this evidence, having shown very clearly this was the case, is they said the only, they said that Facebook's growth is inherently tied to this polarization. And the only solution was for Facebook to abandon its current current business model and move to a different business model. I talk more about what those are in the book. We could have subscription like Netflix, or we could have some form of public ownership independent of the government like the BBC. But so I would say if I was on the board of those companies, listen to your own data scientists. Do you want to be setting the world on fire, right? If we continue on the current trajectory, well, even on the current trajectory we're on, Bolsonaro has massively accelerated the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, right? That will affect every single person listening. That is massively going to drive the climate crisis. And if we're, if we're accelerating not just the destruction of individual attention, but the acceleration of collective attention, that will lead to catastrophic outcomes politically and is leading to catastrophic outcomes politically. It's polarizing people to the right, it's polarizing people to the left, it's causing the collapse of our capacity to have sane discourse of any kind. This is really frightening. Uh, the UN found that the genocide in Burma, Myanmar against the Rohingya Muslim minority was supercharged by Facebook algorithms because they picked up the angry posts about the Rohingya and they promoted them more and more and more. Now, I want to stress again, this is not the intention of Facebook, right? It's not that they want to do it, 
but they now know that's the effect of their technologies. So I would say if I was on the board, is this who we want to be? There are alternatives. You know, the people who own Facebook are going to remain the richest people in the world, right? I'm not saying let's take away their money, right? I mean, I think they should be reasonably taxed, but beyond that, I'm not saying take away their money. I'm saying now let's move all these companies to sustainable business models that don't destroy people's attention individually and collectively. Those business models exist within capitalism. They exist, and some of them exist in a sort of a public, in public ownership independent of government, which is slightly parallel to capitalism. You can choose either. But we, this is not sustainable. This model is not. This model will collapse. It will either collapse because it produces such horrendous outcomes that our society will collapse, or you can move now and you can be the heroic people who did the right thing. But to be completely honest with you, if I was on the board, I would resign because I don't think, I don't think the solution will come internally within these companies. I think it will come from a movement of ordinary people pressuring these companies. Just like think about the lead industry, right? You'll remember, I remember, leaded gasoline used to be the standard form of gasoline in the United States. I remember my mother putting it into her car. And it was discovered that exposure to lead profoundly damaged people's brains and particularly damaged children's ability to focus and pay attention. So what happened? A group of ordinary moms banded together and they said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these people to screw up our children's brains? So, And it's important to notice what they didn't demand. They didn't say, ban all gasoline. That would be ridiculous, right? That leaded, leaded paint was popular at the time as well. They didn't say ban all paint. They said ban the specific component that is causing these problems to our kids. They succeeded. The lead industry would never have done it on their own. Government regulation did it. As a result, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has calculated the average American child is, is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had this ban never been introduced, right? In the same way, I'm not saying ban all social media. Social media is great. Loads of great things about it. I'm saying deal with the specific component that is damaging our attention and focus, which Facebook's own data scientists found was the current business model. There are other business models. You can be as rich as hell. You'll still be the richest humans who've ever lived. Uh, you just won't be setting the world on fire. You're also, and the people in these companies, you know, they know what they're doing, right? And most of them are very unhappy with it. I'm talking about him a lot in this interview, but Dr. Williams, who I mentioned before, he spoke at a tech conference full of designers who were designing the stuff that is obsessing our kids. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world we're creating, please put up your hand now. And not one person put up their hand, right? They're seeing the effects of this as much as anyone. We can get to a good society. We can get to a society where those people have clean consciences and remain stunningly rich, richer than the richest pharaohs in ancient Egypt, right? And they will also have the benefit of not setting the world on fire and not being responsible for the destruction of the Amazon rainforest and the collapse of the American Republic and the collapse of the European Union and all the other trajectories that we're on if these current trends continue. Well, I know that they're paying attention and I appreciate so much your openness. I appreciate so much the work that you, the thoughtful work that you do to, to put forth a message that's very important and urgent yet in a way that is acceptable and accepted. So let's just leave it with this. Do you think we're better off or worse off with technology? I mean, do these iPhones, are we better off having them or not? You see, that's the way big tech want us to frame it. Are you pro or anti-tech? Because, of course, then who's going to say they're anti-tech? Exactly. I'm not going to join the Amish. The question is not, are you pro or anti-tech? The question is, what tech designed for what purposes working in whose interests? I want all the technology we currently have, and I want it designed to heal our attention and our societies, not hack our attention and harm our societies. So it, the question isn't, is it, it of course... There's many great things about it. The way it is currently designed, some aspects of it is causing the harms that we're talking about. So I don't accept the framing of that. I understand why you ask it. It's not an unreasonable thing to ask, but I don't accept the framing of that because I don't think it's, is it, the, the answer is we can have all the good stuff and move away from the bad stuff. That That's the answer. We're not going to convert and join the Amish, nor would I want to. No disrespect to any Amish people who are cheating and listening to this podcast, but that that's not the life we want, right? 
there's many great things about the technology that we have and we want to keep those great things and we want to as facebook's own data scientists say and many people who've been at the heart of the facebook machinery say we want to deal with the specific aspect which is the equivalent of the lead in the lead paint it'd be like you saying to me uh, let's say we were talking in 1975 and i was saying god lead paint and leaded gasoline are damaging children's brains and you said to me yeah but have paint and gasoline done more good than harm I would go, that's not the discussion, right? No one's saying get rid of paint. No one's saying get rid of gasoline. We want to deal with the specific aspect that's harming people's attention. Manage it. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you. You're brilliant. Oh, thank you so and, much. And I hope to not only build on this, but for, for those who want to not only learn more, but also just, you know, no pun intended, follow you because you share great stuff. <laughs> where, where can they go? If you want to know more about the book or where you can get Stolen Focus or the book or, or the audio book, you can go to pretty much anywhere that sells books. But if you go to stolenfocusbook.com, you can listen to audio of lots of the people we've talked about for free, including Professor Mahali Sent Me High, who did the research on Flow and loads of other people. Or if you want to know about my other books, if you go to J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I.com. And it's funny, I, I was asked, I did an interview about a year and a half ago where the guy at the end, he said, you know, um, he was about 50. He said, what's your Twitter? And I said it. And he said, um, although I, I, I don't log into this stuff, my assistant does it. I sent her what I wanted to say. Um, he said, what's your Twitter? And I said it. He said, what's your Facebook? And I said it. He said, what's your Instagram? And I said it. And then he said, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 43-year-old man, right? The only 43-year-old man <laughs> men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles, right? Why else are they there? And uh, he didn't laugh at all. And later I looked him up and he's a 50-year-old man who's quite active on Snapchat. So wow. I'm glad we got through this interview without me accidentally accusing you of being a pedophile. Um, hey. I also joked that we, you know, that show To Catch a Predator where they yep. sort of catch pedophiles. Uh, the next season of To Catch a Predator should be they just walk up to adult men in the street and say, what is your Snapchat handle? And if they have one, just immediately arrest them. <laughs> so yeah, uh, not you can see where to follow me on, on social media other than Snapchat. If you go to, yeah, johanhari.com. You got it, buddy. Great to see you. Cheers. Oh, really enjoyed this, mate.